0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Five. I actually thought watching Boris Johnson, ah, he's had a night's sleep and he's eaten his three shreddies because I thought he had a bit more vim and brio today. Four.
0: You all had all of the data, the world's data on COVID at your fingertips and you were never scared enough to stay apart or follow
2: the rules. Three. Nobody ever solved an airborne virus transmission with a
0: one-way system in Tesco. I said that the way that most people wear their masks make them as much use as a chocolate fire guard.
1: Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Can Boris cling on? We asked that question at the top of last week's Planet Normal. And seven days later, the same question dominates British politics even more so. Public anger about Partygate has, if anything, intensified, with the Prime Minister's attempted apologies for the Downing Street lockdown drinks falling as flat as cheap Prosecco the morning after the night before. Meanwhile, as Omicron cases plunge... Even the most zealous lockdown advocates, the harder, faster, sooner crowd who've dominated our media landscape for the last two years, now claim they're huge Planet Normal fans. (laughs) We've always questioned lockdown, they bleat. Oh, and the human suffering. Well, for those brain-dead weather vanes, we Planet Normal citizens have a taught two-word message, the second of which is off. Since (laughs) the spring of 2020, your Planet Normal co-pilots, rather than accepting the prevailing narrative we've sought out and closely examined evidence, looking at data describing what we know rather than swallowing dodgy modelling by the government's pet academics. We've consistently reported the human realities of lockdown, informed above all by our superb Planet Normal audience. We fully accepted lockdown during the first wave when COVID-19 was an unknown virus. We've both been double-vaxxed and encouraged our listeners to get jabbed too. But we've also acted like the driven, curious, audience-facing journalists that we are. Questioning, examining, reporting, something so many others have failed to do. In your last Telegraph column, Alison, you said you would be proud, and I quote, for the rest of your life of our Planet Normal podcasts. The feeling, dear co-pilot, is mutual.
2: Oh, Halligan, what a strange time, eh? Bit of a
1: smoothie pants there, eh? (laughs)
2: I know you're just hoping for some reciprocal compliments. Actually, before (laughs) we get stuck into this absolutely dire situation, let me just say I thought that the podcast last week, your fantastic interview with Lord Frost, really warm reception from listeners, some of whom commented that he appeared to believe in conservative policies. I mean, you know, there's a novelty. (laughs) Lots of listeners said, could Lord Frost be the Prime Minister? And there may be a vacancy, Halligan. May there not? We don't know. So that was absolutely wonderful. And all credit to my co-pilot We're in the middle of a very fast-moving story, aren't we, Halligan? I mean, Boris is under heavy bombardment Even worse than last week, over the Partygate scandal I expect everyone's seen that absolutely excruciating interview With Beth Rigby of Sky Beth, of course, has got plenty of experience Of breaking lockdown rules herself to <laughs> attend the party
1: It's known in the trade as form <laughs>
2: Form, yes, yeah, she has form. That doesn't stop her, you know, berating the prime. Do you feel ashamed? I can't even do that accent. No, it's, how ashamed are
1: you? How ashamed are you? Yes,
2: how ashamed are you? And Boris, of course, is standing there behind his mask, absolutely looking like he's been battered gone, you know, 19 19- rounds was Rocky Marciano, said, I wasn't told it was against the rules. The rules he had read out and imposed on everyone else. I mean, he did look dreadful. None of that bouncy Boris Bonamy. With which he bivouacs so brilliantly through all the problems of the past. So there are lots of strands to this story, Liam. We can tease them out. There were there were two major shocks in the Commons yesterday where we're actually recording just after the Commons. The MP for Berry South, Christian Wakeford, crossed the floor and defected to Labour, saying the PM was incapable of leadership. Now, listeners will know probably that Christian Wakeford is part of the 2019 Tory red wall intake. I mean, this ingrate Halligan owes his position to Boris, who managed to win the sort of hardcore Labour seat. So that was bad enough. But far worse was the intervention of former Brexit Secretary David Davis, a longtime Boris supporter, who said, in the
1: name of God, go. That's Leo Amory, isn't it, to Chamberlain. And David Davis, he likes his history, he knew exactly what he was doing. And the look on Boris's face was... He literally said, I really don't know what the honourable gentleman is talking about.
2: Yeah, no. And and so many other strands as well. We've got the pork pie plot. You'll have something to say about that, Halligan. You're a man for a pork pie, aren't you?
1: A substantial meal. Oh, that was a Scotch egg. (laughs)
2: substantial meal. Two Scotch eggs. Well, the (laughs) Scotch egg plot. But yes, the pork (laughs) pie plot allegedly centred on Alicia Cairns, the member for Rutland and Melton. Rumours that we could see 20 Tory MPs, again, those newly elected rebellious bunch from 2019, possibly submitting letters of no confidence to Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, number 10, fighting back with Operation Red Meat. There's a lot of carnivorous metaphoring going on here, Halligan, isn't there? And Operation Red Meat is basically a cunning plan to give voters what we all thought we were voting for in December 2019. So where do you think we are? I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, just before you come back, can I just say that I've been texting a very senior source at the heart of that vote of no confidence process. And he said, it's worth reflecting that letters get withdrawn as well as submitted. And Christian Wakeford achieved this by defecting. In other words, feelings can change. So where do you think we are, co pilot
1: I actually thought, watching Boris Johnson, ah, he's had a night's sleep and he's eaten his three shreddies because I thought he had a bit more vim and brio today. A bit more, can I say, lead in his pencil? Can I risk that turn of phrase?
2: We don't want any more lead in his pencil. He's got two children under (laughs) Quite enough lead in
1: his pencil. (laughs) I I thought he was a bit more on his uppers. His
2: pencil needs confiscating, Halligan, quite honestly. (laughs)
1: Put back in its pencil case. (laughs) I thought he had a bit more spring in his step. Of course, every political pundit at Westminster is saying that Graham Brady has 20, 30, 40, 50 letters in his top drawer, delete as applicable. But the reality is that no one knows. The only person who really knows is Graham Brady and... Everyone accepts that he is an extremely discreet man who takes his job as the chair of the 22s, as you've said, extremely seriously. My hunch, and it is nothing more than a hunch, I talked to various MPs along the way and they WhatsApp me and I WhatsApp them and all the rest of it. My hunch is that we're somewhere between 20 and 30. But I think after today's performance, a couple of those letters that would have been sent in won't be sent in. And others may even be withdrawn. The fact that you had a non-entity MP who nobody have heard of, now he's crossed the floor, he's become a trivial pursuit question. I think that will actually galvanise a lot of the Tories. It will become more tribal. They'll dig their heels in. And the ultimate question, Alison, we talk as much outside planet normal as we do on planet normal don't we we talk in the rocket on the way to planet normal don't we and then of course we're broadcasting from planet normal i can see a clanger just over there oh there's the soup dragon (laughs) (laughs) as we were saying earlier this week my view is that the really big question and we talked about it at the end of last week it was i think one of our Excellent Planet Normal correspondent, I think it was co-pilot or cosmonaut Wayne, said to us, and you agree with him and I agree with him. The really big question isn't, is Boris annoying me or not? Because clearly he's annoying a lot of people. The big question is, who do you replace him with? Yeah. And I think a lot of the conservative grassroots, they think, you know, if Jeremy Hunt is the answer, they're asking the wrong question.
2: (laughs) Away, smiley Satan away. Oh, my God. Imagine the reform of the NHS under Jeremy Hunt. Not. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's right, Liam. I think Liz Truss is away in Australia where she can kind of, you know, subtly hide any disloyalty she may feel. Rishi's in the frame, isn't he? But are these the people to drop into the hot seat at the moment? We've got a little flutter on the great Penny mordant. If it's going to come to a competition, I'd like to see some people outside that circle who've been involved up to their necks in all the lockdown. Of course, we've had the announcement, the victorious announcement really of the end of Plan B The end of all restrictions, people were wondering whether he would be keeping masks. You know, there's been a huge uproar, particularly from us for them, the parents pressure group about the masking of children. He actually basically said children can take their masks off tomorrow, which shows how responsive he is to his voters fury. So it's no more working from home, no mandatory masks on public transport. And this should be a really amazing moment for the prime minister. Liam, think about the state of my former boyfriend, Mr. Omicron, Omicron over in France. I mean, France <laughs> has got everything, hasn't it? Vaccine. I had to parcels, think there, there are so
1: many former Pearson <laughs> Bowes.
2: Yeah, but I've, I've transferred my loyalties now to Lord Frost, you know, he's, he's Look, the guy for me.
1: Does himself indoors know? What does himself say?
2: he'll be fine he'll be fine he can chat with lady frost they will get on like a house on fire he's very easy it's very easy going but yes yeah, so france where you know every restriction in the book and about 460,000 cases a day england in particular uh, is looking so much better. We'll have a, a few words from George later about the very positive hospital situation. But, you know, Boris has been vindicated. And I don't know if you saw, Liam, in the comments today that Keir Starmer asked the Prime Minister for evidence for the decision to end Plan B restrictions. Did we see the Labour leader ask for evidence to bring the restrictions in? No, no evidence at all. So they have got a bloody cheek, Labour. And, and Wes Streeting? who I do, you know, we both think is rather good. He's the shadow health secretary.
1: Future leader, in my view.
2: Yeah, potentially very, very good. But he's out there saying, you know, we must never have lockdown again. But the opposition party not only failed to challenge any of the destructive rules, but continually called for them to be stricter. Just to introduce the final thread in, in what I think is this actually amazing psychodrama? This is Othello. This is a Revengers tragedy, Liam, because we've got Dominic Cummings off stage, haven't we? Former, <laughs> close compadre of Boris, who is now saying he's prepared to swear on oath that the PM was warned of holding this highly damaging party. And I was talking to himself last night, who, as you know, is a bit of an academic scholar. And Anthony said to me, you remember that what Yago... He's the brains in the family. He's the brains (laughs) in the family. I know. I'm the showbiz (laughs) end of things. But Anthony said that what Yago hated about Othello was Desdemona. And I think we've got an astonishing triangle going on there. Because... Cummings, I think, thinks he was the Svengali, He got Boris, who's a bit sort of bumbling and can be clueless, into Downing Street. He sorted out Brexit. And then the Othello, the Boris figure, had the gall to chuck him out and go with Carrie, go, stick with Desdemona. So I think we're seeing, and I don't think Cummings will rest until Boris is dead, basically. What, what, what do you think? I mean, you know him a bit. I mean, it's incredibly riveting, but also really quite horrible and unedifying.
1: Yes, of course it is. I think psychodrama is a good word. There's clearly a lot of bad blood there, a big vendetta. As we've been saying in recent weeks on Planet Normal, when people work at the highest echelons of power in a goldfish bowl under enormous pressure, it's not all nicey-nicey. People get trampled on and feelings get seriously hurt, noses get put out of joint Mm -hmm. and very driven people don't let up until... They get their way. That's, you know, the kind of personalities that are attracted often to politics. And I thought that when the prime minister was talking at the dispatch box earlier this afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, when we are recording this, he's trying to get beyond that. The line that stood out for me, the line that he will be hoping gets on the tea time news this evening, Wednesday evening, is when the history of the Labour Party is written, when the history of the COVID pandemic is written, I made the big calls correctly. And that's what he's got to focus on, because objectively, the UK and certainly England is in a better position than pretty much any other big economy in the Northern Hemisphere, even though we are arguably the most open and most customer-facing economy in the Northern Hemisphere in terms of, our travel and our trade and in that sense in a situation where everybody's had a really bad time across the world the UK has got a decent claim and Boris Johnson has got ownership of that claim to have done reasonably well during this pandemic and that's what he's got to focus on and that's what he's hoping the removal of these plan b restrictions will do getting the Tories back on side, getting the rank and file back on side, getting a lot of the silent majority of the British population who are completely cheesed off with these restrictions Mm. back on side. Look at the opinion polls now, a complete reversal, not just from this time last year, but, you know, just a few months before Christmas with a lot of scepticism towards these ongoing restrictions. So he is hoping that that can punch through. And in some ways he doesn't deserve to get through this crisis Really unscathed because he made some really stupid decisions and he clearly should have had somebody around him or himself if he saw that email or if he was told by Dominic Cummings. And he probably was in passing. The question is, has Dominic Cummings got a sort of email audit or WhatsApp trail of it? We shall see. He should have just said, look. The Strength Party is just mad, as we've said before. And Alistair Campbell would have said, whatever you think of him, do not do this. You need people with enough political savvy to look down the road at how something is going to look in retrospect if it leaks. And these kind of things always leak. But I would say, with some hesitation, you know, he may end up, by the time this podcast come out, he may no longer be the Prime Minister. He may not be the Prime Minister this time next week. But I would say after today's performance, he's got more of a fighting chance than he had at the beginning of this week, even than he had when we recorded last week's podcast. And I say that, I say that because, because of the response when he declared that this pandemic restrictions, that they are coming to an end. And an awful lot of his rank and file will think, would Keir Starmer have done that? Probably not.
2: I agree with you, Liam. And I think you've picked up the line that all of his conciliaries are using is he got the big calls right. That's what they are going out and claiming. But I was quite interested, Liam, talking about his survival. There was a poll by Channel 4 News, which showed that a majority of Conservative Party members, 63%, don't think the Prime Minister should resign over Partygate. 25% wanted him to stand down immediately. And I don't know what you feel, but I find this round-the-clock baying for Boris's blood by his old enemies in the BBC and on Sky News to make you feel a bit like, sorry, this man's democratically elected by us. The media, which has had a, such a pernicious influence during the lockdowns, has you know, forced him, I think, to do things against his nature. Now they think they can drive him out. Well, sorry. You know, we are a democracy. Beth Rigby doesn't get to decide whether the prime minister, you know, survives or falls. And I think, I don't know if you saw, Liam, there was a very, I think we both admired a story this week by Sarah Napt of the Telegraph Science.
1: Absolutely. Superb journalist. Very,
2: very good story. Again, supporting some of what we've been saying on Planet Normal, that wildly incorrect COVID modelling had bounced Boris into the second lockdown. The usual suspects, I think this time it was modelling from Cambridge and Public Health England had predicted 4,000 deaths a day. And they had leaked that terrifying figure to the press. So by the time Boris was able to try and consult Professor Carl Hennigan, and a few more moderate voices, Professor Tim Spector, the public were already calling for more restrictions. And I think when the history of this period is written, this is what we will see that an essentially libertarian prime minister, who probably was quite suspicious of some of what he was being asked to do wouldn't have ever been his inclination to stop people having a drink, Liam, you know, or or using the lead in their pencils. But I do feel sympathetic about the Prime Minister. And I do think now we can rely on him to say, it's over. No more COVID. We're sick of it. We're moving on. I don't think I would trust Keir Starmer to do that. I don't think I would trust Jeremy Hunt to do that. So I think it's a slightly invidious choice, isn't it?
1: It is. When I saw Sarah's piece, I felt warm inside because it made me uh, proud that our colleague had written that uh, and that the Telegraph had ran it in as prominently as they did run it. That's a big, big move by the Telegraph. But they did that because they we are a responsible paper and the science editor had the story, as we say in journalism, bang to rights. Yeah, it, it wasn't you and me gunslinging, not that we are slipshod with our facts, but we are commentators. God
2: forbid, Halligan, we are. We
1: join the dots before they're undeniably joined. And it strikes me that the narrative is now completely shifting. And that brings me to this notion of how, as I mentioned in the opening to this week's Planet Normal, you've now got some of the most harder, faster, longer lockdown journalists trying to jump on the bandwagon of, oh, I was never for lockdown. I always doubted it. Look at these awful human stories. Alison, well done for pointing out all these crazy rules. You know, or oh, I'll retweet you with my million followers. What we did, and we were period for it, What we did is we followed evidence and we reported human stories and we drew conclusions in order not to argue against lockdown completely, but to argue for a debate about lockdown, given the downsides of lockdown, which quite a long time ago, Alison, we concluded were greater than the upsides of lockdown. And guess what? Some of the world's leading scientists think we're right on the record and an awful lot more who haven't got the guts to agree with us on the record actually do agree with us in private.
2: Something I felt, I mean, I I tackled this in my column this week, I don't want to forget, I don't want these people who were responsible for this travesty and tragedy to be able to airbrush it out of the picture because I think there was so much ludicy. We've charted it on. But What about next time? So what I did was I asked readers and now I'm asking listeners to come up with the absolutely maddest, most lunatic measures that we were subjected to. And I got so many, Liam, on Twitter. Absolutely fantastic. Church yesterday, wafer but no wine for communion service, followed by wine and biscuits to mark the vicar's retirement. Pubs with no volume on the TV. You'll love this one. No butterfly stroke allowed while swimming. I mean... Who signed off on these? Absolutely mad. sage maniac, which member of the nudge unit said that fathers were not allowed to visit newborn babies or form a socially distanced queue at the airport before being sardined into a packed plane for two hours? People falling down on the escalator on the underground because they were frightened of touching the handrails, but you couldn't get COVID from surfaces on and on. And, you know, this lovely guy wrote to me and said, nobody ever solved an airborne virus transmission with a one-way system in Tesco. So we've got these fantastic memories from people, Birmingham City Council cutting the grass in two metre strips so the weeds could socially distance. I mean, there are very, very funny ones, but people died alone. Somebody wrote to me and said, how many people died alone? And I think we should just keep mentioning these things because they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. And as you said, we're seeing these public recantations now. Did you see that guy from the Nudge Unit who was saying, well, I think we may have overdone it a bit with the fear? And you actually (laughs) thought... Like some kid who sort of, you know, sets puts a banger in the bonfire night box of fireworks and then rings the fire service to say, I can't understand why I've started a fire. So, yeah, on and on. I mean, we are vindicated, but these people shouldn't be allowed to forget.
0: The Telegraph brings you a new podcast series, witnessed History.
1: Harry. Will you take Megan to be your wife?
0: The moments we all remember. I will. Told by Telegraph journalists who were there.
2: You remember how magical and remarkable it all was and it makes you feel sad that they're no longer a
0: part of the royal family. Follow Eyewitness History in the same place you're listening
2: to this. Anyway, on to a bit of showbiz razzmatazz. We don't often get that in The Rocket, but this week, our guest is Denise Welsh. Denise will be known to listeners. She's a household name, thanks to her amazing star turn as the landlady of the Rovers' return in Coronation Street and her regular feisty appearances on the Loose Women panel. Denise, who describes herself as a down-to-earth Geordie, has been one of the very few celebrities and TV stars to speak out against lockdown restrictions, becoming a hugely effective campaigner on social media, often calling out senior scientists and MPs. You may know this, Liam, but after giving birth to a son in 1989, Denise suffered profound postnatal depression, which led to many dark years, which she medicated With alcohol and drugs. And and she told that remarkable story with incredible courage in her book, The Unwelcome Visitor. She talked about working on Coronation Street. There were days I would binge drink until I blacked out. I was still taking antidepressants and the alcohol would cancel these out. So when I got an active depression, it was much worse. There were mornings when I can't tell you how hard it was to get up for work. And then when I was on the set, I felt I couldn't say a line properly. I would watch an episode I'd been in, Denise said, and would hardly remember doing it. But the public never realized. She's an absolute trooper, Liam. Denise's family were the Welches of Whitley B, making the kind of sweets they used to sell on market stalls, welches football chews and Welches lollies. Over Christmas 2020, Denise's dad, whose best friend was the sitcom writer of genius Ian Lafreny, became seriously ill. Denise caused huge controversy when she said she was glad that she drove up north, breaking COVID rules to see her dad for the last time. I began by asking Denise Welsh how she feels about being called courageous
0: for the stand that she's taken against lockdown. Well, It's interesting that you say courage because, you know, the people who support the likes of of you and I, you know, say, oh, you're so brave. And I think within my industry, obviously, we're living in an era of cancel culture. You know, I think maybe because my dad was perhaps I've always been a a people pleaser, really. Again, people might think on loose women that that wouldn't be the case but i've actually never been that controversial loose women is a show where we where, where, where it's opinion led and it's anecdote led so it's always about myself and often in a very sort of self deprecating way but you know i didn't want people not to like me and again in our industry it's become much more so over the last few years that you've got to be very careful what you say when i'm doing loose I have to self-edit in my head what I'm about to say every single second because one false move and that's it. But with this, obviously at the beginning, it was all terrifying and we were seeing pictures of, you know, tanks in the street and it was this awful, weird, surreal thing that was happening. And I was as frightened as anyone, not so much of the virus then. I was just frightened of this kind of awful atmosphere that was pervading over us all. And then it all started and we went into lockdown and For some reason, something in my bones, something just told me that, as my mother used to say, there was a rabbit off somewhere. And it wasn't to say, because I know we've all been accused of being a COVID denier, never once have I ever denied the horrendousness, if that's a word, of this virus for a lot of people. But it was when... Mostly when it really turned, it was when the bridges were happening. So we were all clapping for carers, which we were happy to do. And on a Thursday night, I would turn on the news or look at the the papers or whatever. And there on a Thursday night, supported by our emergency services, the fire, the police, the ambulances, were hordes, hundreds, nay, thousands of people on Westminster Bridge, outside of hospitals around the country. Now, I didn't have a problem with that at all. The problem that I had was during that time, people were being threatened with arrest for walking with a friend. The main thing was that they were told that they couldn't properly grieve with a proper celebratory send-off, someone that they'd been married to for 50 years. Mm. And indeed, people were being threatened with arrest on the very day that these people were turning clap for carers into a carnival. My thing was, when is the bleeping government going to put a stop to this? Not because I resented those people doing that, but because I I couldn't understand how week after week, the hypocrisy of this carnival. And I even saw, I was looking at Twitter, and I saw some police force saying, oh, clap for carers night. Yes, we were all down there outside such and such a hospital supporting. There was Billy Bloggs down with his guitar and bottles of wine. This is where we're meant to be protected. This is what they were telling us that this was dangerous. This was because a deadly pandemic was amongst us and we must not even talk to another person in the street. And that's when I thought, nah, sod this, it's over for me. I've seen the emperor without any clothes. And once you've done that, as you know, Alison, you can't see him with the clothes again. And so then I'm coming at everything from a completely different narrative. And when I realized that there was a sort of Covidian cult emerging was... After the first wave, where many people lost their lives, not just with COVID or of COVID, but because of COVID, when we went through a phase of months where we didn't have hardly any COVID, and I couldn't believe that nothing was being said about this. So you had all of these weeks on end going by, sometimes with zero deaths. I never once said COVID is over. All I was saying is, since the first wave, There has been a lot learned medically about this condition. They are proning patients. They're not ventilating them as much. There was three drugs that were really successfully helping people who maybe previously would have died. So all I was saying is we can't go back to where we were. So this is good news. So I would see that, say, somebody I would never take my advice from Joan from Facebook, as many people think that I do. I would see that, say, Doncaster Hospital has had no COVID patients for three weeks. I would then look at the ONS situation I would then find out I would maybe ring the local Doncaster paper I was I was quite obsessed with it it's interesting isn't it because as you say
2: once you start to sort of feel the narrative unraveling you you know you do start digging into it so well you
0: do and the thing is every single night as soon as the deaths weren't there the cases started to be pushed out. So there wasn't enough fear at that point in the death. So let's change deaths to cases. And of course, unless you were people like you as a journalist or me, just somebody with a vested interest in what was happening in front of us, you would think that everybody was still going to die.
2: People on Twitter will say to people like you and me, oh, where did you get your medical degree from? Which virologist are you quoting? But isn't it the fact that, What I think shines through all your social media stuff is that you are a woman obsessed. And and why do you think that is, Denise? Now, some listeners will know that you've written absolutely brilliantly and heartbreakingly about your own history with mental illness. After the birth of your son, Matthew, you had the most savage postnatal depression. I've just finished your marvellous book, Pulling Myself Together, which I can highly recommend to Planet Normal listeners. Was there an element, do you think, of you being aware of perhaps an epidemic of you know the mentally vulnerable going to be suffering under lockdown, which stirred your passion and anger? It is the
0: only thing that stirred my passion was the fact that I saw the fear machine, the scaremongering machine out in force. And therefore, I thought when we have the nightly briefings, they're going to flip it around and they're going to say it's not over, but we're just saying you can go out, you can see granny, you can do all these things, but they didn't. They ramped up the fear. And that's when I got really, really angry because I was waking up in the morning And um, Nadia Sawala called it to me one day, the scroll of terror, where you woke up every morning, for a second you forgot about it, and then you remembered, and then you'd pick up your phone and scroll down. And the scroll of terror began, and the anxiety and the dry mouth. And I was getting calls and messages from people who had never experienced anxiety before, not as a kind of an illness. And I know that anxiety very easily can tip over into mental illness, and certainly into major mental health issues. But when I would put good news statistics out, my example that I remember even her name, I put something like Doncaster Hospital, for example, hasn't seen any COVID patients in 12 weeks. This woman's Pauline went, you are grotesque. I mean, and I just thought, wow, sorry, there's not enough deaths in there for you, Pauline. And a lot of people have got a sort of raison d'etre because of this some people on our side of the coin in journalism you know there's a lot of people have made a career out of this one way or the other mine People say, oh, you must have been shut down or they must not remotely at all.
2: Was there any, you know, attacks coming back at you? And obviously people would say you want people to die when you'd even mentioned any of these, you know, contradictions. Did you have anything that really upset you?
0: No, they're very supportive of me because I'm not I've never been controversial. I've never I was never going to die on the vaccine hill. I was never going to die on the mask hill. But how the press twisted as well. I said when they remandated the indoor mask wearing, I said that the way that most people wear their masks make them as much use as a chocolate fire guard. (laughs) The press then picked it up and said, Denise Welch says that masks are like a chocolate fire guard. I never said that. I don't know enough about that. All I do know is that the way we wear masks, it drives me mad because we're not wearing them properly. And I think the virtue signaling that's happened has really turned my stomach, to be honest. It's really so annoying. My Twitter has become much more about the COVID situation, Mm. but it's mostly in support of people's mental health to say, this is what you may have heard in the mainstream media today. This is maybe what you haven't heard. This is some data for you. These are some facts. And I have a huge amount of outpouring of love and support. But I cannot tell you, and I'm sure you've maybe been the same, there's a lot of people that use me as a bit of a drug mule. In what way? In as much as they will send me things privately that they want me to put out. Ah. So have you seen this den? And I think, yes, I have. Why don't you and well put it out? I'll put the stuff that is important to me, not that's important to you. So it's been very interesting. And I'm talking about quite a few famous people have done that, each to their own. Nobody's forced to speak out, but don't try and use me to speak out on your behalf just because you want to save your jobs, you know?
2: Can I bring you to your dad, who you describe so vividly in your book, absolute marvellous character of obviously thwarted thespian. And your mother had that as well, your beautiful mother. So you had these dramatic genes coming down the family. Your dad took ill over Christmas 2020. You said that you drove up the motorway with a dry, dry mouth to see him. So many didn't break the rules because of this crazy fear that has been instilled in people. So were you aware when you were driving up the motorway to see him that you were breaking the rules?
0: Oh, my God, of course I was. You know, my, my eldest son didn't leave London because of that very thing, because he's in a very famous place band, the 1975. And to be honest, those were the only drawbacks, Alison, because if you're famous, if you're well known, the media will make an absolute meal of it. And I had already seen certain people who would deigned to go and visit their parents in a back garden had been plastered over the newspapers because of this horrific act of treason or whatever you'd call it, you know. And so I was worried about it because we were told they were randomly going to stop people and ask them why and where they were going. And so I drove up, but I drove up with trepidation. But anyway, I did go up to my sisters and saw dad. And I'm so glad because we had a wonderful time. And it was on Christmas Day that dad took ill, which turned out to be, he'd never been ill in 84 years, Alison, not even hardly a cold. He got this, what turned out to be this awful gallbladder situation. And and that's why I had been critical of the NHS system. Again, people would say, How can you say that? I'm not criticizing the nurses and the doctors in the hospital. The system is broken. And if it hadn't been for my sister and I, my dad would have died much earlier. And that is why I have been so vocal about the stopping of visiting, you know, because it's the families that pick up these things. They pick up dehydration. They pick up urine infections because the cognitive skills go. The nurses are very busy. When my dad was in. In one hospital, there was hardly any COVID. They told me that, but they still stopped visitors. It was awful. And then, of course, he eventually was released from hospital after several months. We, we took him back to us in Cheshire and we loved him back to health. And then he got pneumonia.
2: How do you think, Denise? I mean, I was very struck by your description of you and your sister being able to be advocates for your father. I think that's what's been lacking. Is it, you're not blaming the doctors and nurses, but there's no substitute, is there, for relatives being by the bedside?
0: Well, there's not, but where the system is broken is that my dad was told he had cancer by one consultant who then didn't apologise. He just said, I hadn't read the notes. He was then told that he was going to go home and have a drain by another consultant, and so he was saying, oh, I'm coming home for six weeks, I'm having a drain, and we went, oh my God, are you? At that moment, his consultant walked in and told me he was having surgery two days later. When I said, hang on a minute, he's just been told he's going home for six weeks with a drain, he said, who told you that? I said, well, you tell me. And he said, oh, it it doesn't work like that anymore. And I just said, well, it doesn't work, period. You know, and that's not good enough, Alison. This system is very broken, and these nurses are picking up the slack.
2: We are living now in a period where what I would call the resistance, I guess is becoming vindicated every day, Denise. We hear, don't we, oh, some, some new admission that maybe people are dying with COVID rather than of COVID. You've been particularly beady-eyed picking up those things. D- do you feel glad that these things are coming out or do you feel it's a bit unbearable that these people who were attacking you are now subtly repositioning themselves for the post-COVID
0: world? There are many people... That, and I understand that say, but does it matter if they died of or with COVID? I'm not saying that more people didn't die because of COVID. But from the very beginning, we were saying there is a big difference of COVID causing the death or somebody else having COVID, often caught in the hospital, often caught in the hospital, much more so than than many people thought, caught in the hospital and then dying of their original condition, they just happened to have COVID. So COVID didn't always cause the death of the person with the underlying condition. And again, I talked to several doctors. You know, I talked to them personally. I don't name these people because they may not want to be named and I talk to them privately. And I'm now to the point where I don't care if people believe that I talk to these doctors. I'm not so stupid as to say things like that and to put data out there, just making it up off the top of my head. So we are being vindicated. But what gets me, Alison, is that with the exception of you and and, and a few others, most journalists have not done their job. I put the other day, some big journalist had said, you know, almost like breaking news. Some deaths may be with COVID, not of COVID. And it's like, what are you talking about breaking news? We've known this from the absolute beginning of time and have been praying for it and the other people going yeah oh thank goodness we didn't lock down because we didn't need to again oh brilliant you know blah 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 it's like hang on a minute At it, it, prime minister's briefings all of you journalists who are now braying about you know it you never once You never once said anything other than, but why aren't we locking down sooner, Prime Minister? Lockdown, lockdown. Other countries are locking down. Why aren't we locking down? And we know that we've got a Prime Minister who just likes to be liked by people. And, you know... It's, I couldn't possibly comment on the on the limitations
2: of my own noble trade. Listen, Well,
0: don't worry, I've done it for you.
2: Well, you have done it for me. What's your thought? So with all these Downing Street parties, it it seems to me that a lot of people say, what's all the fuss? I mean, I don't know what you think, but it seems to me that it's not about people after work having a few drinks. It's about what other people were not being permitted to do.
0: Well, the main thing to me was, I don't care how many of you were there, It's the fact that none of you were scared. And I'm talking about 2020. I'm talking about pre-vaccine. None of you together wore masks in Downing Street. You weren't scared of the virus. And yet you were all going home to people that might have been vulnerable. You all had all of the data, the world's data on COVID at your fingertips. And you were never scared enough. To stay apart or follow the rules.
2: What's the theory? What What happened? Were they panic stricken? Did they copy each other?
0: What, what What do you think went on? The thing is, Alison, I, I really fought not going down these rabbit holes because, as well as the people like me who have been very anti-lockdown as a as, as a go-to thing, realizing the collateral damage. And the thing is. When you threaten lockdown even over Christmas and all these journalists are baying and the Labour Party baying for tighter restrictions when clearly the data didn't require them. All of these people like myself who live in a nice house in Cheshire and I'll tell you quite truthfully, I enjoyed the first lockdown. It was no biggie for me. I love spending time with my husband on a sunny on a sunny sun deck outside, you know, so it was no skin off my nose from that point of view. But you say that, you mention the word lockdown to someone who lives in a tenement block in the middle of Newcastle, who's got three children who are maybe not gonna be able to go to school, who's got a husband who's an abuser who wants to have a drink, or the wife wants to have a drink, it's not a gender thing. You tell me what that word lockdown means to you and tell me that it's okay to keep us in fear of lockdown all the time. We're still not out of it. We should be told there's gonna be no more lockdowns. If somebody could just explain to me what benefit the vaccine passport is going to do. I have been very pro-vaccine. I am against, as many of us are, the vaccine passport. And yet countries are becoming authoritarian states by their desire to push this vaccine passport. So is there another agenda? I don't know. I liked to feel that it was just total ineptitude. It was fear on their part initially. And then, of course, the control takes over. And what was it Michael Gove said in 2009 relating to... Tony Blair's wanting the digital ID when he said that once you give a a government emergency powers they will hardly ever hand them back.
2: You have written again very powerfully about your own struggles with addiction while you were starring in Coronation Street you were medicating self-medicating depression with cocaine and alcohol do do you think inevitably that that this whole situation will have encouraged increased addiction is that is that how you see it?
0: Yeah, it has. It has. Without a shadow of a doubt, it has. It definitely has. It's increased attempted suicides. A paramedic told me three weeks ago, he said to me, it's not COVID in this hospital that's causing the problem. It's COVID protocol. It's not saying there wasn't any COVID. He said it's the COVID protocol. And he said... 70% 70% of call-outs, Denise, on some nights on mental health distress calls. And nobody is picking up on that. Nobody.
2: Can Denise Welsh, can you be the Prime Minister? I think Mr Halligan and I would like, would like to nominate you. Now, just
0: tell us quickly. Oh, my God. I'm so passionate about all it is, is about presenting the truth to people and not just what they hear on the news and read on the Mail Online on
2: planet normal Liam and I love to hear about you know where people came from the, the stories about how they got where they are you're a, a proud product of Whitley Bay in the northeast now, I know I know I haven't broken this news to co-pilot Halligan because he'll explode with excitement, but your godfather, Denise, is the wonderful writer, Ian Lafrené. And in one part of your book, you say that you had Rodney Bewes of The Likely Lads lodging with you. So when
0: he wrote The Likely Lads, the se- second series, I was nine. And, of course, they were, like, they were like the Beatles. One day, Ian used to have this silver cloud, Rolls-Royce. You know, in the days that Rolls-Royces looked like Rolls-Royces, and he took me in a car in the Rolls Royce. He picked me up from school at lunchtime. In the car was Ian, Rodney Buse, and Tom Courtney. And I'm nine. And we went and had fish and chips at the coast. And on the way back, he dropped me at school. And Rodney Buse told this on my This Is Your Life. Apparently, I got out of the car and said, Oh, well, back to reality. <laughs>
2: That's the style. You also, you know, you you went on to be in, you know, Spender, all these, you know, Biker Grove, obviously Corrie. Can you give us a few bars of the the song that you had in the, um, went into the charts at number one, didn't it?
0: You don't have to say you love me, just be close yeah. to me.
2: Can I just say that now you've basically got a degree in virology. You have spoken out absolutely brilliantly about your depression, g- given comfort I think to millions of people, and now you've given the same comfort and strength I think to people who've been terrorized and t- really terrified of COVID, but you've put yourself out there in, in the most remarkable way. And on Planet Normal, we salute you, Denise Welsh.
1: We certainly do. What a fabulous interview. you got to just sing on the rocket. That's my job. I
2: know you normally are the singer, but I thought as Denise has been <laughs> top of the charts. Now, do you think she's more uninterruptible than your co-pilot? Be honest.
1: <laughs> I think you met your match there.
2: <laughs> Can I just say, Halligan, Forget Sue Gray investigating the Prime Minister. Get that Denise Welsh into number 10.
1: Isn't she marvellous? She can give her verdict from the set of The Rovers' Return, can't she? Or the Queen Vic in EastEnders, get out of my pub, she can say in a wonderful Northeast accent.
2: She's extremely modest, Liam. She did get into a grammar school. She said she wasn't one of the more academic kids. She obviously shone at drama. But she's absolutely been a woman obsessed with this. As she said to me, she saw the emperor had no clothes and she has learned. She has, like you and I, she has acquired the data, you know, locking horns with scientists. She's absolutely fearless. And as with a previous guest, Adam Brooks, the publican, here are two very normal, not university educated people who have just got the compassion, the feeling for what's been lost, what people are suffering. And I think that's what marks them out. And I think they feel they've had to step in because they can see this sort of arrant lunacy. And, you know, Denise is a huge advocate on behalf of the mentally ill.
1: You don't need a ritzy-ditsy education to work this stuff out. You just need the curiosity and the drive and the determination to... Look at information in an objective way, as you, co pilot, have proven with your <laughs> with Velma my... <laughs> purple roll neck on and those sort of weird <laughs> blue specks that you sometimes wear in your cartoon format. But I would say this in the end, what really upsets me about Boris Johnson is that he's got an enormous secretariat of people. He's got a civil service of people. If he had been a bit more curious, if he had been a bit more determined, a bit more diligent and hardworking, as you have been, he could have, you know, found out enough stuff to have pushed back against the ever-tighter lockdown academics, the sage scientists. The media lockdown champions. He could have pushed back. He could have argued at the dispatch box. I don't think this is right. And this is why. And guess what? Many, many, many epidemiologists would have said, yes, you're right, Prime Minister. We agree with you. Because We know that those scientists who disagreed with prolonged lockdown, you and I both accepted the first, absolutely, as I've made clear. But by the time we got into the autumn of 2020 and into 2021, there were many, many scientists out there who didn't agree. We were giving them a platform on planet normal. They weren't getting into the mainstream press. The prime minister could have helped them to get a platform into the mainstream press by inviting them through the the Downing Street front door so people had to see that the bloke that runs the country was consulting them. But just before we finish off this section of the podcast, Alison, before the emails, I do want to hear from George because we didn't hear from George at the top of the show. And George, of course, this is a bit of a moment for Planet Normal, has been by the side of this podcast throughout our source within NHS England who feeds you data on request, which we can't independently verify because often it isn't published, though we trust its veracity, which is that's why we report it.
2: Yes. So we're going straight to George. People were complaining last week because we didn't have any George. But can I just say, Halligan, you'll be very excited. Denise said that she's going over to LA to stay with her godfather, Ian Lafreni, and he's agreed to FaceTime us. So let's
1: get him on the rocket. Let's get him on the rocket. get him on the rocket. Who shall have the fishy on the little dishy? (laughs) That's the Likely Lads theme tune, by the way, if you're under 50.
2: (laughs) Before I go to George, there was that chap, Chris Hopson, one of the big sort of NHS cheeses, was on The World at One today talking about, oh, the NHS isn't out of the woods yet. And then citing some 16,000, 17,000 COVID patients in hospital. And George says... It's looking increasingly like COVID in patients have reached the peak and will start to decline over the coming weeks. New hospitalizations are trending downwards and have been doing so over the past couple of weeks, although daily variation is quite wide. The proportion of patients in hospital with incidental COVID has fallen to just over 50%. Now, listen to this, co-pilot. This means that half of all hospital patients with a confirmed COVID diagnosis are not being treated primarily for COVID. Yesterday... There were just over 7,500 patients being treated primarily for COVID in England, but that is still under half the figure you will see tonight, listeners, on the BBC News. Now, here we go, Halligan. Velma's favourite word the rate of nosocomial infection. <laughs> nosocomial infections, that is, infections that people sadly catch in the hospital, is still around one in three of all patients diagnosed after admission. Now, hard to believe, isn't it? So many people, huge percentage of the number of hospital admissions, they call them hospital admissions on the news, but those people actually caught COVID in the hospital. George says the COVID patients do still create logistical issues for hospitals and having to keep these patients separate from the rest. But, says George, it clearly dilutes the idea that COVID is still causing large numbers of people to need hospital care. No, Chris Hobson, the NHS is nearly out of the woods with COVID. Now onto our reader emails. James says, my father Harry died in hospital just after Christmas, peacefully drifting off in his sleep after a life that began in London's Mile End in 1930. A totally different world of genuine austerity. The cause of his death, COVID. Well, that's what it says on the death certificate, not the fact that he was 92, extremely frail with multiple blood cots, Parkinson's and double pneumonia. He caught the virus in the hospital, No, nosocomially, Alison, as he was negative when he went in. After a week, dad tested positive, and so we couldn't see him, despite my protestations that this could easily be our last chance of a visit. And so it proved. So why do I say to you that COVID was my dad's friend? Because he was a very elderly gentleman who had clearly reached the end of his life. And just like pneumonia used to be called the old man's friend, COVID was nature's act of kindness. Since then, whenever the never-ending COVID death count is announced on the news, I wonder which day's morbid tally my dad was dropped into and how many other Harries there have been since this era of lunacy began. And Lord Frost, if you are listening, please pick up the ball from the back of the scrum and help restore a very, very old normal. Liam and Alison, keep up the good work. And on that same theme, Rose writes to Planet Normal, now that we have some figures for the death caused by COVID without any underlying conditions, there is yet another holier-than-thou vibe going on on social media. People who are pointing out the correct figures are being accused by virtue signallers of not caring about the people who died with underlying conditions. Of course, that's not true. Everyone I know has sympathy for all the deaths in the last two years, but the new figures are shocking and revealing and worth the attention they are getting. As far as underlying conditions go, every story is individual. My 59-year-old husband died of lung cancer a few years ago, two years after diagnosis. He tried so hard to live, accepted every treatment, chemo, radiation, laser, and he was constantly prescribed steroids and antibiotics. During his two-year illness, he was admitted to hospital a couple of times with respiratory infections from which he somehow managed to recover. Had he still been alive during these last couple of years and caught COVID, it may well have hastened his death by a few days. But if his death had then been recorded as a COVID death, it would have been a bloody insult to the last two years of his life. He wouldn't have died of a respiratory infection. He would have died of lung cancer. After all he went through, after how hard he worked to keep enjoying life despite his terminal illness, I'd have been furious to have him lumped in with the COVID figures. Also, annoyingly, if he had caught COVID and managed to recover as he previously did when he had respiratory infections, he still would have been recorded as a COVID death if he then died of his cancer four weeks later. That would have been such an insult to his bravery and tenacity, and I'm relieved that he died before all this started. Also, it would have been nonsense for me to think for a minute that had he not caught COVID, he would have lived. The man was dying of cancer and had already outlived his prognosis. Nothing would have saved him or changed this. To be honest, it would have been a blessing if he had slipped away when he had one of his respiratory infections. I would far rather have held my husband's hand in the hospital as he slipped out of consciousness with pneumonia instead of the sudden, shocking, brutal hemorrhage that finally ended his life. This is the reality of underlying conditions. A respiratory infection bringing forward death by a few days isn't necessarily the most horrendous thing that could possibly happen in cases like my husband's. I do love your podcast. Thank you so much for your voices of sanity in the chaos of the last
1: two years. Warm wishes, Rose. Here's one from PJ Allison. My wife and I, both ex-GPs in our 70s now, have been listening to your podcast for over a year we never miss it and we've never looked forward to a podcast so much i believe planet normal has been a very important source of information on covid realities and it's presented in such a sensible sensitive and amusing way there you go british medical association what do you think of that and this is from linda i can't tell you how much i've enjoyed this podcast for the past 18 months thank you linda Liam and Alison bring a sense of balance to the madness happening all around us and the quality of their guests is outstanding. Just listen to the one with Adam Brooks. He was our amazing publican from Essex, wasn't he, Alison? Just listen to the one with Adam Brooks and what a breath of fresh air he is. He's fought for the hospitality industry over the past two years and the points he makes are so valid. Boris should have people like Adam and Molly Kingsley, who's fighting for our children on SAGE. With their input, Boris would have made far more balanced decisions throughout this period of insanity. I also listened to the one with Lord Froster's guest. Shame he's left number 10, but by doing so, he's raised awareness of the nonsense going on in politics.
2: And Robert says, Good to hear the increasing chorus of support for your battle against lockdown orthodoxy and Covid theatre. More voices seem to be adding themselves by day though some were cheerleaders for the Politburo, as Halligan has pointed out, and smeared the Great Barrington Declaration. Time, perhaps, to award Reverse Ferret of the Week Award. Congratulations to Planet Normal on the brilliantly effective campaign. What a lovely email.
1: So that's it from Planet Normal. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. It's Alison's turn. Well,
2: Liam, I think slightly controversially and with the permission of our editor, Theodora Leludis, I think we should give two mugs this week, one to James and one to Rose. James and Rose, please email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and the highly sought after, what does Halligan say, rare as rocking horse poo mugs will be in the post to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us and it keeps Liam Halligan very happy.
1: <laughs> That's the main thing. <laughs> so do keep emailing us, if only for my sanity. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bujard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett, our editor, Theodora Leloudis, Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.